This episode of Story Institute's Ramblin' Verser is brought to you by Timeless Tales. We bring you travel and fun, creating new stories in your life. Enhance your stories now. Well, hello there, and welcome to Story Institute's Ramblin' Verser podcast, episode 11. As we head into April, we are reminded of timeliness of podcasts. This podcast, uh, hopefully, will come to you right at the release of our special guest today, Michael J. Sullivan's new book, and uh, we hope you enjoy the conversation with him. Uh, we have many things going on at Story Institute. We're closing out that uh, uh, poetry contest. The short story contest is winding down. That'll be April 15th. So those of you still waiting... Uh, to get that short story in, well, go ahead and submit it at storyinstitute.com. And for those of you looking for just a great, uh, great poetry contest, waiting for the results, stay tuned to Story Institute for, for the winners. The quote of the day is brought to us by Abraham Lincoln. Character is like a tree and reputation like a shadow. The shadow is what we think of it. The tree is the real thing. Many times our imagination is like that shadow. Uh, and it is uh, more like that reputation. Unless we bring it into reality, unless we help it grow uh, like the tree itself, unless we put it down into writing, it's just, it's just that shadow that kind of eludes us. So spend some time with your imagination, but remember to share it more frequently, whether it's in book format or just sharing the stories with, with your friends. And here's Terry with the poem of the week. Terry? Here is this, this week's poem by Alfred Lloyd Tennyson. Ask me no more. Ask me no more. The moon may draw the sea. The cloud may stoop from heaven and take the shape, with fold to fold of mountain or of cape. But, oh, too fond, when have I answered thee? Ask me no more. Ask me no more. What answer should I give? I love not hollow cheek or faded eye. Yet, oh, my friend, I will not have thee die. Ask me no more. No more, lest I should bid thee live. Ask me no more. Ask me no more, thy fate and mine are sealed. I strove against the stream, and all in vain. Let the great river take me to the main. No more, dear love, for at a touch I yield. Ask me no more. Thank you, Terry. And as we head into this week's conversation with Michael J. Sullivan, we want you to remember the, the, the details that, that you hear in this poem with Alfred Lloyd Tennyson. While the Ask Me No More line is repeated over and over again, In each stanza of the poem, we still get a storyline as readers, a path in which to follow. And our author today has a path that he is following with his writing. And in his second book, uh, just coming out now, we'll get a bigger glimpse of his vision for this world that he's created. A world that's not too complicated, but very rich with fantasy, detail, and the right amount of humor. As you listen to our conversation, ask if your writing has this level of detail, this level of commitment. In the meantime, relax and enjoy the show. We're here with Michael J. Sullivan, author of The Crown Conspiracy. Uh, Michael, thank you for joining us and welcome. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about why you write. Uh, Really, it's always been for pure enjoyment. I've never really written for any particular purpose. Uh, Originally, it started out because I had read... Uh, one of the very first books I read cover to cover that I enjoyed was The Hobbit and then finally The Lord of the Rings. And when I got done reading that, uh, I wanted to read something else similar to that, but this was back in the 
mid-70s, and there really wasn't much out mimicking him at that time. And I couldn't find anything at any of the bookstores or library to read at that point, so I ended up uh, writing because I had this void I wanted to fill. I actually originally tried to do a sequel to Lord of the Rings, which was a bit ridiculous, but uh, and gave up on that when I realized it. Uh, but this is back when I was about 13 years old, and from that point on, I just found that it was very enjoyable to uh, create worlds, more or less. So the idea was just to, uh, you know, add words to my imagination, create worlds, create people, and it was much more, uh, it was much more fun for me. In a way, it was like, you know, pretending to be God, because you could actually have anything you want happen. And, uh, and then I found that when I let people read it, they found enjoyment out of it, too. So really, it's only been something that I enjoyed to do. There was no other purpose behind it. How, how do you find new ideas to write about? Uh, most of my ideas, surprisingly, just come from uh, daydreaming. Like when I was, uh, whenever you go to sleep, I always had trouble going to sleep as a kid, I would come up with an idea and just daydream about whatever I would like to have happen. Uh, if, uh, if I had watched Star Trek, I'd imagine being the you know, captain of the Starship Enterprise. But in my mind, I couldn't just be that. I had to figure out some logical, feasible way that a 13-year-old kid in our day and age, can end up being that. And it ended up that my daydreams would all take place in the getting to the point where I would be the captain of the Starship Enterprise or of a spaceship, and then I'd fall asleep before I even got there. So I got very much in the habit of creating logical, sensible foundations for these fantasies that I would come up with. So most of my ideas really came up with things that I would really enjoy doing or, or having have happened. Uh, and they would be very elaborate. And then eventually when I started writing them down, I had a kind of a, a large library of ideas that uh, would be bouncing around in my head that when I got to writing, I just would figure out ways to logically put them down on paper. So tell us a little bit about more about the focus of your writing. What, what is, you know, you talked about the world creating these ideas that you have and some of the experiences that, that you draw from. Uh, what really is the, is the focus at this point? Well, originally, when I first started out, I ended up writing on a number of genres. Uh, my first love was fantasy, the medieval-type fantasy with, you know, uh, heroes and dwarves and elves and that kind of thing. But as I got older, I drifted out of that into the more of uh, contemporary what-if stories, such as your, your Stephen King. And uh, then I moved into some science fiction, and I started mimicking other writers uh, just as a way of, of expanding my skills. But then I ended up working for a very long time, uh, for about 10 years, trying to get published, writing a, a number of different types of novels, uh, until I, I got to where I was studying writing in a fashion of, you know, reading Nobel Prize winning books and Pulitzer Prize winning books and trying to emulate that style of writing, which in my mind tends to focus more on the craft of writing and less on the plot of writing. And when I did that, uh, I discovered that it was something you know, I, I wasn't as interested in, and I ended up losing interest in writing because it wasn't as fun as it had been when I was a kid reading more strong plot stories. And then I kind of retired from it because I had been had so many rejections, uh, and I had so many other friends moving on with their lives, and I was not getting anywhere. Um, I was still stuck in the same spot doing nothing, getting nowhere. So I, I became very depressed, and eventually I went back into the work world, and I completely stopped writing. I wasn't planning on ever getting published or ever trying to get published. But what happened was um, my daughter was having trouble reading. She would never, she was falling behind in school. So I actually started writing a series of stories merely to interest her. 
uh, to give her something that, that she would be interested in. And to do that, I went back to fantasy because she, she was someone interested in, in your medieval type fantasy stories because she was interested in like Harry Potter and she was interested in, uh, you know, uh, I think there was the Narnia trilogy by C.S. Lewis. And in, in so creating this process, I ended up writing a number of fantasy books, which was very easy for me. I never intended them to get published. I wrote them purely for my own enjoyment and for my daughters. And this is what I've gotten into now, because this was the first book that actually got recognition and was now published. So right now I'm focusing on the series of six books, which is a, a medieval fantasy set in an uh, alternative world. So does, does your daughter inspire you to write, or do you have other inspirations for your writing? Uh, well, the kind of funny thing is, is that uh, I wrote the novel for her, uh, the first novel for her, but she refused to read it. And she refused to read it because she has some strange quirks in the fact that she wasn't comfortable reading it in manuscript form. She, she wanted to read it in a book that she could have bound, and actually she destroys her books. She likes to bend them apart. And she felt that she couldn't read it. It was uncomfortable for her to read it in manuscript form. She, she told me, she said, well, if you want me to read it, you have to get it published. So she definitely inspired me to seek out a publisher. But I, I wasn't writing specifically for her so much as I was writing for my own enjoyment. It was something that I hadn't done in a long time. As I said, I was writing you know, very serious literary fiction with the purpose of trying to uh, establish you know, myself as a credible writer. And I wasn't enjoying that. So when I, I got to these books, I was writing purely for the, the desire of um, doing something that was just enjoyable and fun. And uh, it was when I, I actually picked up the Harry Potter series for my daughter, uh, and I read that. I found her, her writing was so easy to get into, and the story and the characters were so enjoyable to, to read about. I thought, you know, that's something that I would just like to try and do. And although I wasn't intending to write a young adult book, um, yeah, I was trying to write something that I think anyone could just fall into and just have a great time um, and, and just be really happy and, and be very entertained as opposed to having to struggle through learning uh, a whole new word vocabulary or, or struggling through very dense description. I wanted something that people could enjoy as if they were watching a great action movie. So tell us a little bit about, about your book, The Crown Conspiracy. All right, the first book, The Crown Conspiracy, the first of the, of the series, was... Um, it's essentially about two thieves who are uh, caught in the wrong place at the wrong time and end up um, being uh, accused of murdering the king. They, they end up uh, walking in on the dead body of the king, and, and they're therefore you know, arrested at that point and uh, plan to be executed for that. And this starts off this, uh, this series of events where... Um, you discover there is a conspiracy going on, and they have to figure out who is the actual murderer and uh, who set them up and what is actually going on before such time as either they're captured by the authorities or the murderer finds them and obviously silences them by killing them. And this first book is a very fun, exciting, page-turning kind of romp through this world that I'm, I'm trying to introduce the reader to very lightly. I don't want the reader to be bogged down and facing, you know, uh, having to learn this whole new genre or this whole new world with, with strange names. I want it to be something that they're just going to enjoy the story. And interspersed between the dialogue and the setting and the description, you're going to gain um, information that's going to help you understand the world. 
but it's never going to be, you know, blocked into a, uh, several pages where you're going to sit down and press and feel like you're taking notes to make sure you know what's going on. It's just going to, it's a very light introduction. It's a fun, exciting story. Yeah, I wouldn't say it, it's something that is going to be earth-changing, certainly not in this first story, and it's not meant to be because it's not meant to be a sequel series. In other words, the first book is more like, like the first chapter of the story, although it's a complete story and it comes to a complete end, you won't be left with a cliffhanger of any kind. It's not the kind of thing where you're going to learn everything about the world or everything even about the main characters. I want to save that so that each story is not a repetition, it's not a sequel, it's not a reiteration of the first book, but rather it builds very slowly, and each book is going to give you more and more information about not only the world, not only the plot, but about the characters as well. So how important is that to you to finish the, the conversation, finish the, the storyline within each book? Uh, I thought that was very important because I, I, one of the complaints my daughter had was she was reading a lot of fantasy, and she came to me and she got very upset because one of the authors she was reading was, was constantly leaving the book in a cliffhanger. And in fact, she would say that the first book, the f- portion of the book was kind of boring, and then she'd get to the really exciting part, and the, the author would leave it hanging. And then it would be two or three years before the next book came out, and it was very aggravating for her. So that was one of the things I sought not to do. I also was looking for it. I was looking at the series in a fashion of uh, being sort of a, a television series with a finite ending, with a, with a story arc that can, went over several episodes. But I wanted each episode to be its own story so that you would be happy to complete that and yet know that something else is going to carry over. And each time you get to the next episode, the overall plot is going to get more and more intense. And so finally, when you get to that last book, everything's going to come together in a very strong and powerful way. And that's what I think about the the series is that the first book is a fun introduction. And like I said, it's it's an enjoyable story, but it's not earth-shattering. But taken as a whole, when you get the entire series done, which I wrote completely before the first book got published, so it was all done and it was all laid out in its entirety, when you get to that last book, you're going to find that I think this series is very has a lot of depth and a lot of very moving scenes that you wouldn't really expect from that first introduction. Because the first introduction is supposed to be a light, fun, enjoyable introduction. It's not supposed to, to uh, you know, rock your world, but the whole series will, I think, when you get to the end of it. So you have your your second book in that series is is coming out soon. Is there is there something that you'd like to share about that? A, a little bit of, of hint as far as what what may be going on in that world. Uh, the second book is coming out April first of this year, and it's it will obviously in the first book. A lot of people have explained problems with the fact that they felt that you know the characters weren't as in-depth as they wanted them to be, which was by design on my part. I, I wanted the reader, when you got to the end of the first book, to want to know more about the, the characters and want to know more about the world. Um, so in the second book, you're going to find that it's going to be far more information is going to be coming out. Um, but you don't need to read the first book in order to read the second book. I mean, you, it's completely independent if you wanted to go that way, but certainly as you read the second, there will be references to things that happened before, which will probably make you want to read the first one. But you don't really need to. Um, it is, uh, it's, its storyline is essentially another mystery. The first one was a conspiratorial mystery. It had to do with uh, the, the sort of the political structure of the world. This is a more of a, uh, if, if you could go so far as sort of a horror mystery where there is a, a problem um, with a village that's being, having nightly attacks. Um, and the two heroes, the thieves, are, are hired to help out with this. 
to find get to the bottom of this mystery and, and solve this problem. Uh, and this leads in to an even greater thread that was touched on in the first book, where again you you, you touch back to that conspiracy that grows even larger. And after this second book, the storyline is going to really start picking up pace. One interesting part that you mentioned besides the storyline was the gap between you know book one and book two sometimes, and and that you complete complete your work. The other piece that you do is that you you do have a blog where you talk about uh, writers versus storytelling. You talk about the language of fantasy. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what what inspired that? What what uh, what keeps you going back even to that blog? Well, actually, that was more along the lines of my wife's idea to try and get more people to notice my story. But uh, she just set me up with a blog, and I started writing it. And eventually, I started writing mostly just about what I was doing in my writing process for the purpose of trying to make people aware that I was I had books to begin with. But as time went on, I mean, I, I run out of ideas of writing because not a lot happens all the time as I wait for my publisher to come back with edits. So I end up having to try and dream up things that I can write about. So. I'm, I'm not sure what my audience would be interested in reading. Um, so in, in so far as trying to fill those gaps, I end up writing anything I can think of, which is how I started writing or my philosophy of writing or um, what I think makes a good story versus a bad story. And, and I have no idea how well this is received because I really don't get a lot of feedback on that. But I hope that people who are reading it do find something in there of interest that uh, they would come back and read more. Now tell us a little bit more about your audience. What, what makes them unique or what makes them you know, your, your typical fantasy audience? Uh, well, I don't have a lot of, of information as to who my audience is at this point in time. Um, when I go to a book signing, it's not like I get a lot of people coming up to me who uh, are there specifically to, specifically to see me. I see a lot of people who I'm trying to coax to read the book for their very first time. But I do have a number uh, a a following on uh, the internet in areas such as, uh, you know, Goodreads or, or other book clubs in the area. Uh, as far as they're concerned, they're mostly people who, strangely enough, they're not necessarily strictly fantasy readers. Um, Crown Conspiracy, and I didn't intend it this way per se, but it seems to be appealing to both fantasy readers as well as mainstream readers, people who have never read fantasy before in their lives will pick up the book and say, you know, this is the first fantasy book I've ever read, but I'm really glad I read it. Or people who don't like fantasy, who had this book picked for a book will come out and say, you know, I, I really don't like fantasy, but this one, this one was appealing to me. And a number of people who are experienced fantasy readers were generally tell me, at least, that they liked the fact that it wasn't quite so dense, wasn't, didn't have quite the learning curve to try and uh, have to learn so much that you were drawn right into the story, and that seemed to be appealing to most of the uh, most of the uh, readers that I have. Um, also, the only my, my very first fan club, if if you want to go that far, would be uh, Dragon Child, which was a a, uh, a guild um, from EverQuest, which was an online role playing game, and they were the very first ones who read the very first segments of the book, even before it was published. So I had to give them a heads uh, a little you know, recognition for that. So, so how do you react to feedback from from your audiences? You know, when when you think about the positive feedback, the things that that you need to work on, even how does that help you as a writer? Does it does it motivate you, or is it just is it just another part of the writing job? 
Well, as far as that's concerned, it's rather difficult to um, evaluate feedback at this stage because of the fact that a lot of people, their negative comments are not necessarily negative in respect that because this is the first book of a rather long series. In my mind, I see it as one story. So when they say that there's something wrong with book one, like for instance, they, they, a lot of people have felt that uh, the characters weren't in-depth enough, they didn't learn enough about them, that was actually by design. Now at the end of the series, if people come and tell me that same thing, I will say, oh, well, yeah, okay, I, I failed in that situation. Um, and there's other elements where people will, will criticize the book, but in my mind, I'm thinking they probably are doing that because they don't realize what's coming next. And until you actually see the entire scope of the work, it's very difficult for me to understand whether the person has a legitimate grievance or not. Um, but whenever a reader has a problem with the book, I always have to take that into consideration because they are my audience. They're the people who I'm writing for at this point. They're the ones who, if they have an issue with it being too slow or with it being too fast, then that's something I need to address. The last question I have for you is about uh, feedback or uh, advice that you would have for, for other writers, uh, whether they're looking to write for a career or just looking to, to get that first poem or, or novel or short story published. What kind of advice would you offer to them? Well, I don't really have any experience with uh, like poetry, or, and, and short stories is something I've done mostly, most recently. It's not something I, I care to do as much because, for me, short stories are very difficult. Uh, to write in short fiction form is is far more challenging to me than a novel because everything I write tends to become a novel, becomes a much larger story. To condense that down is quite a challenge, and I'm, I'm very impressed by people who can do that. Uh, but for, although I would say that short stories are very important, particularly if you're trying to get published, because that allows you to get some publishing credibility uh, in, in much easier avenues such as magazines and such. Uh, in fact, my very first uh, agent told me that if I wanted to get published in a book that I should try to get some short stories, and that's actually how I ended up starting writing my first short stories. Uh, as far as books are concerned, I'd have to say that uh, it's important, regardless of what genre you're writing in, that you really should study various genres, because if you do that, you'll discover various authors have strengths and weaknesses. And if you're only in one genre, you're not going to be able to get enough tools. You're not going to be able to learn all the different ways you can control a story. When I started writing, I actually have never had a class in writing. I've never had a seminar. I've never um, read a book on writing. It was merely me reading authors that I really liked and, and taking apart their writing to try and figure out what it was about them that I liked. I, For instance, I loved Steinbeck's way of, of writing a very believable setting that is so vivid you can, you can feel that you're there. And I felt that John Updike had a very wonderful way of writing prose. It was very interesting the way he would describe something without seemingly to actually describe it. But in doing so, he, he made it more vivid than if he had actually come right out and said what it was. Um, and, and so by taking apart these different writers, I ended up trying to emulate them. I would actually write an entire novel based on a specific writer's style in order to teach myself what it was they were doing right. And then I'd move on to the next person and then would take from that next writer. Uh, it's almost like Siler from Heroes, uh, the television series where I was actually stealing talents from each person. Now, when I went to writing fantasy, I didn't use most of these, but I have them. So that if I get to a situation where I want to write 
in a specific way or I'm, I'm trying to establish a, a certain feel in the reader's mind, I have those tools that I can draw upon. Also, you need to work on your pacing so that the story, a lot of writers seem to have it so that in the beginning of the story, the story starts out very slowly and it builds very slowly and then at the very end, it rushes. And I think that if, if you can stretch that out a little bit so it's not so one-sided, it's not so back-heavy, that the initial part, the suspense, builds up in such a way that it, it, you have enough action early on so that it doesn't feel imbalanced. That's also rather important. Uh, also, I, I've always felt that you need to know where you're going. You need to know where the story is going to end because if you get a story where you have a huge amount of suspense and a huge amount of, of tension and anticipation, and then you don't have a big ending to, to balance that out, the reader is going to feel to some degree that they were cheated, that, that you promised this great, this great thing that was going to happen. And if you don't have a, a super climax to, to compensate for that, they're going to feel that it fizzled out at the end. And that's why I think a lot of people who read stories often feel very disappointed when they get to the end of the book. And my first agent uh, was reading my book. She got about halfway through it, and she responded that she was really enjoying it. It was very exciting. But then she felt that she had to finish it because so often, she said, you get to the end of the book, and the end never pays off, and it tends to leave you down. And she was very pleased that when she got to the end of my book, it didn't do that. Um, and I think a lot of that tends to come from people who don't know exactly where the story is going to go. So they, they spend a lot of time working that beginning, they get to the end, and it's just there's nothing there for them to write about, and they kind of figure some way to end the book. And, and somehow that it, they, they end up never having quite as good an ending as they wanted to. And the result is, is a story that ends up kind of flat and disappointing. So in that respect, I think it's really important that you have a knowledge of where you're going and that the end justifies the beginning. Very good. Well, And that's some, some pretty sound advice for, for anyone looking to – to, to write and to, to expand on on the, their hopes of becoming a writer. Well, I thank you for, for, for joining us today, and uh, um, you can check out more of Michael's work at michaelsullivan-author.com. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Michael. Thank you for having me. We'd like to thank Michael for his commitment to our conversation and welcome your feedback to this episode or any episode that we have had. You can send us an email at ramblingverser at storyinstitute.com. Give us a call at 615-713-1783 or just stop by storyinstitute.com and leave a reply on, on any of the podcasts. Right now, here's Terry with the poetry and short story topic of the week. Terry? And here's this week's short story topic, Wisping Away the Colonels. Shucking corn had always been something Mary and her family did. With husks and little hairs lying in a heap on the table, they never noticed the even thinner wisps of light that seemed to fade and float away. Where do they go? What are they? These little creatures are actually the ones who take care of the crops and nurture every kernel. The hairs left behind are the remnants of the threads they leave behind. When Mary was nine, she thought she saw something float away and wave to her. Her mother dismissed it as a rogue ray of light. During this fall festive season, 12 years after that first experience, she picks up a new cob. Her sisters and relatives continue to talk. Her mind has begun to drift as she thinks about what she wants to do with her life. This time, however, the ray of light does wave. It stammers and lands on her nose. Mary still did not notice the creature until two others are lifting the injured one toward the window. Mary jumps up and just stares into the bright sunlight. What happens next? Does it inspire Mary? Does she tell the others? What is their reaction? 
Does Mary try to track down another? Does she know where these creatures reside? Decide on the story and write. Post it to the website at storyinstitute.com or share elsewhere. But write and enjoy. And here's this week's poetry topic, forest or trees. The forest or the trees? Really, choose one or the other. Writing about nature is always subjective and reflective of the prospective poet. It is a smoother setting to place other objects within the forest and things in trees, but writing about the items individually can cause one to climb branches never intended to be touched. Think of the simple beauty within. Ask yourself questions if the words to reflect the intended interactions and visions. Does your tree have leaves or needles? Is your forest established or newly planted? Is it spring or fall? Is the trunk smooth or bumpy? Where is your forest? How special is your tree? Be creative and look for symbols and intensity within the photo to paint your own picture in words. Post it to our website at storyinstitute.com or share elsewhere, but write and enjoy. Thank you again for joining us. Please visit us here again next week when we'll have a new topic and a new series of discussions. In the meantime, remember to imagine, enhance, and grow your stories.